according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 4 once again this evening. Philippians 4, picking up where we left off on Sunday, and then really this close to the end of the chapter and this close to the end of the book. Um, We do have to deal with the uh, greetings and the grace of uh, verses 20, uh, basically 20 through 23, and we'll handle that as a separate development once we finish 10 through 19, and uh, almost we're almost done with that. All right, before we do begin, though, let's ask the Father for His faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding to teach us from His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your faithfulness day after day, year after year, generation after generation. You are faithful, and we thank you for that. We call upon your faithfulness this evening to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless our time of study. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I want to take a few minutes for some questions and answers. I know we had some unresolved questions from a week ago. Uh, Bill had asked about a verse from Jude. There's a reference in Jude 21 that says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that seems like an awkward phrase since we know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, When we go to Romans 8 we find that there's no condemnation, there's no separation. We can never be removed from the love of God as far as our salvation is concerned. And so that being the case, why would we then be commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God? And that uh, almost would seem to be nonsensical or contradictory and so forth. So anyway, there's there's good answers for this. And uh, and I asked him a week ago if he would give me a week to find some good answers. And I think the, the best way that I've reconciled it in my own thinking anyway is, is in the sense that in Romans we're talking about on an individual basis. Each one of us personally is born again, personally is saved, personally is eternally secure. The issues there being in the singular related to that. Here it's in the plural, and here we have a corporate emphasis. And I think for a local church to keep themselves in the love of God is a different issue as far as uh, us walking in love with one another. As uh, Romans uh, talks about there with let love be without hypocrisy and how we function together in love as a local assembly. And really the best clue for all of this is the immediate context of that imperative because keep yourselves in the love of God doesn't sit there all by its lonesome. It's actually preceded by two participles and followed by a third participle where it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. And that's edification in the plural. So that's all y'all building up all y'all in in the faith, right? Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And so none of us builds ourselves up in a retroactive or some kind of a reciprocal construction project. Uh, I'm building you, you're building me, we're building one another. We edify others in in, uh, the local church. So building yourselves up in your most holy faith Praying in the Holy Spirit, that too is a plural verb. That too is with reference to corporate prayer in the local assembly. And so those two participles, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then the third participle that follows the imperative, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. 
And so that's being uh, constantly mindful of the rapture. It's a rapture reference, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life when uh, in His mercy we get snatched up to the clouds and we get to enter into glory without physical death. So my short answer then to the question is how do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, it's speaking corporally. How it is that a local church functions in love towards one another in, uh, in a corporate application. So that was the uh, old business that uh, wraps that up from a week ago. So do we have any new questions tonight as it relates to anything? I even have a new battery in my stylus so I can draw pictures tonight, unlike uh, Sunday morning when I stood up here with a dead stylus. No questions. Yes, sir. Microphone here at the front row. Also, uh, maybe we might even follow up with what we were dealing with Sunday morning too, since I can draw pictures now. I just kind of like to know what you think uh, a good meaning of the imperative to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing? Yeah. Uh, I don't have any problem with pray without ceasing. I, I like that. Uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this. There's three imperatives, but they're combined in a single this. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And so as far as unceasing prayers, there's a the consistent regularity of the prayers. Um, as far as, I guess, is that what you're asking about? Or? I've also taken it in a maybe a slightly different meaning to always be prepared to pray. You're praying without ceasing, your regular prayers, mm-hmm. but to stay in a condition spiritually that you're prepared to pray Oh yeah, you could look at it that way, but I do think it is a consistent uh, ongoing prayer. So for example, um, and we use it in English the same way we use it in Greek, it's just a, a, a thing we do. So, um, you know, I have been pastoring for 25 years, nonstop, you know. Uh, well, you know, I do sleep, you know, so when I'm sleeping, I'm not praying, uh, and that doesn't mean I'm breaking the law that says pray without ceasing. Or when I'm sleeping, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm not pastoring actively. But, uh, you know, the Bill Clinton thing about, well, what does is mean? You know, um, is can be, and he's right about this, it can be referring to episodic or repeated or consistent things. So if I have a consistent, fervent, effectual prayer life, if I'm praying daily, that doesn't mean it has to be 24 hours a day without stopping. That's, yeah, well, I've come across people who... Well, yeah, and they're they're silly, yeah. <laughs> All right, appreciate that. <coughs> there you go. Anything else? Other questions tonight? Let me um, let me just ask you something here, and I'll take two minutes. Well, no, probably six minutes, um, because the picture I was trying to draw for you this on Sunday when I had the dead, um, when I had the, I, I drew it this morning for Proverbs, and I want to draw it again tonight. So this is what we were looking at. This is what I would have drawn on Sunday. All right, so I'm going to draw it again tonight. And I'll save myself some time because it's already up there. The left side of your paper, the right side of your paper. And this is going to be huge for you in Hebrews, looking at the New Covenant, in, in other passages, in other concepts. Okay, Because I think just like with any aspect of language, I think we can get confused when we're bringing it from Greek to English or Hebrew to English, and so forth. Just concepts, like sin as a concept. 
So we all understand that the wages of sin is death, right? And uh, sin singular is death, not sins plural, sin singular. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn to Romans 5, we can see that through one man, a death entered in, a sin entered into the world, and death through sin. That's the, that's the doctrine, right? God, when, when Adam sinned, not only did he condemn Adam to spiritual death, but he actually condemned Adamic humanity to spiritual death. Everyone in Adam, including Eve, who sinned first, but she didn't, her eyes weren't open, she wasn't uh, assigned spiritual death until Adam sinned. That's huge, okay? So through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's not a catalog of all the sins you've ever done. That's the universal statement that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We were all in Adam when Adam sinned. And so humanity became a fallen race. Now the reason why that's significant is because that puts all of humanity in a lost estate in Adam without hope, without eternal life, without you know, any provision of their own to deal with that. That's going to be huge in understanding where Israel is in the Old Covenant, where Israel is under Mosaic Covenant. Because under Mosaic Covenant, Israel is doomed. Israel is in broken covenant. Israel is ready for wrath. Israel is worthy of wrath. Okay? And so there's parallels here. And I'm hoping we can grasp this. And if I have to teach it 10 times, 20 times, we're going to, get, we're going to grasp this. So in Adam all die. So with respect to Adam's sin, and everything on the left side of the page should be basics. You should be solid on this. This is how you got saved, how I got saved. We all got saved. So sin, there's an issue with sin and the wages of sin is death. And everyone in Adam is, is subject to that, which is why the second Adam had to come and be our substitute. And so Jesus came and he was our substitute. Again, that's Romans chapter 5. And so the, the free gift is not like the transgression and, and through the gift of the one, the many have, uh, have life. And so we understand what the doctrine is here of justification by faith. So we were sinners, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus comes as the substitute. Because see, this is the thing, the righteousness of God must be satisfied. He can't just, without the cross, he cannot, he's not free to be gracious. He's not free to show his love. But when Jesus Christ satisfied his righteousness and his justice, then he's free to show his love towards us. That's the principle. Because he can't just say, oh well, that's okay, I'm going to save you anyway. Without the cross, he can't. We've got to be clear on that, right? So once that issue of sin and death is dealt with, now God is free to be gracious to all who will believe in Christ for eternal life. And that's the left side of the page. Now, everything I just said on the left side of the page Let's apply it on the right side of the page, but here we're not talking about sin, we're talking about law. And this is the first covenant. This is the first covenant that God made, the the Mosaic law, it's what's going to be replaced by the new covenant. And I tell you, it gets so damaged, I tell you, it gets so lost by folks that are going through the book of Hebrews that fail to realize that the new covenant that's spoken of there in the book of Hebrews is God's provision for the Jewish people, His provision for Israel to replace the Mosaic Covenant, which they broke. Which they broke. And it says that again and again. Jeremiah 31, 31. 
Behold, I will make a new covenant. After these days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, the Lord says. Okay? So Israel is standing in a broken relationship as a covenant nation, and they are worthy of the curse. Okay? Big difference. If the wages of sin is death, on the right side of the page, the wages of covenant breaking, if you want to phrase it like that, the consequences for the covenant nation in, in violation of their covenant is the curse. They recited all those curses before they even went into the land. The curse. Okay? So now, here's, the, here's my question for you. If, if the cross was necessary for God to save us, He couldn't just look at our sin and say, oh, well, that's okay, I'll save you anyway. That same attitude is true over here on the right side of the paper as well. They're in a broken relationship as per the Mosaic Covenant. And God just can't throw up his hands and say, oh, well, that's okay. We'll just give you a do-over on that. We'll just pretend that way. It's there. It's there, and they're in material breach. And so, again, it's the character of God that has to be satisfied. The resolution of the Mosaic Covenant has to be satisfied. That is, the curse. Okay? And this is what Jesus also accepted on the cross. He became a curse on the cross to redeem us from the law, it says. That's the whole point in Galatians there, where he became a curse. So, uh, again, you have, uh, of course, the law was given by Moses. He was the mediator. And who's going to be the mediator of the New Covenant? a prophet like unto Moses, a second Moses, if you will. Just like we have the first Adam and the second Adam, we've got the first Moses and the second Moses. Because Moses said, a prophet like me will come. And uh, in Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy of a second Moses. Well, that's Jesus. And he's going to be the mediator of this new covenant. And he can't just hand them this new covenant without resolving the curses from the first covenant. See? any more than he can save us without resolving the sin issue. So I hope that makes sense. Is there any question on that? Is that? Do you understand the analogy on that? It's completely analogous. From the first Adam to the second Adam, the first Moses, the second Moses, uh, the wages of sin is death, the consequences of covenant violation is the curse. Jesus resolved both sides of this sheet of paper. He resolved both of them at the cross. He was doing multiple things at the cross, not just saving us. He was providing to give Israel a new covenant by fulfilling their obligations under the broken first covenant. Again, substitutionary. Again, all of these things. And so hopefully um, the next time we're, uh, which will be a week from Sunday, the next time we're in Hebrews chapter 9 and we're reading about how uh, a death has taken place And it says, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That has nothing whatsoever to do with Adam's original sin or humanity's sin or saving us from our sins or providing us eternal life. It has everything to do with fulfilling the covenant obligations on Israel's behalf so that he can then give them the new covenant to the Jewish nation. I hope that's clear. Anyway, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Anyway, I wanted to throw that up there. That's what I would have drawn for you on Sunday, except I had a dead um, battery. Did you realize that? We all know about double A's and triple A's. Did you know there's a quadruple A battery? 
that's even that's that's what sits inside of here. It is super super skinny, and it's called AAAA, a, a quadruple A battery. And uh, now we know. All right, so there it is. Let's go to Philippians four then and pick up where we left off Sunday. Thank you, Chris. Philippians 4. All right. They had sent him a gift. He was very thankful for the gift. That's why he's writing this. Really, verses 10 through 19 is a thank you note for the money that they sent and a celebration for the priestly function that they were exercising, that it was indeed a sweet-smelling savor, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It then goes on to say, and my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're looking at here. Verse 19 is a promise. It is a promise, but it's an abused promise that gets twisted and it gets misapplied. And I think it gets wrongfully claimed uh, because it gets separated from its uh, context. That is verse 18. And so the linkage between 18 and 19 is, is multiple and it is undeniable. And that's what I want to pick up uh, here this evening. So let me get back to where we were. If I can find it, I think it is here. There we go. All right. Paul's final comment regarding the Philippian gift, the Philippian grace gift, the money that they sent, places this aspect of local church ministry firmly within the priesthood function of the body of Christ. It's not soldier function. It's not ambassadorial function. It is priestly function. When you are giving as unto the Lord, it is a sweet-smelling savor. It is a, a sacrifice that goes up to God. We'll see more of those in, uh, in Hebrews. All right. And so we have this, uh, these terms. A fragrant aroma. I'm going to start here. I am receiving. I am abounding. I have been filled. Now the one we want to lock in on from verse 18 is that I have been filled because that's plerao. And plerao is the one that gets repeated then in verse 19. Not the apekamai, not the parasuo. What gets repeated in verse 19 is the uh, plerao, is the filling. That's key, okay? Because essentially what he's saying is, you have filled me, God will fill you. That's the tandem, that's the, that's the connection. So, um, when he says, I am amply supplied, that is, I have been filled. And, uh, and I believe we correctly identified with, I have been filled with the fruit of righteousness for Christ's sake. That's mentioned there in Philippians 1.11. They sent him money. He wasn't filled with money. They sent him their prayers and their love, and it was a sweet-smelling savor. It was a priestly function. What was he filled with? I believe, again, Philippians 1.11, that filling having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled, as he says. All right, so that's what we want to lock in on here tonight. In verse 18 he says, I have been filled. In verse 19 he says, God will fill your need. And it's plerao again. Okay, so that's, that's what links these two verses together. So, I have been filled having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God will supply all 
your need. Will plerao all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All right. We also talked about what a fragrant aroma is all about. We talked about what an acceptable sacrifice is. That is a delight, that which pleases God, that which is well-pleasing to Him. He wants to embrace. It is uh, acceptable, delightful, well-pleasing. Now, this issue on plerao. I am having been plerao'd, and my God will plerao every need of yours. That's what he's saying here. I am... I am having been plerao'd and my God will plerao every need of yours. Okay? Don't lose that context. Don't lose that context because that's key. It's key here and it's key everywhere else we're going to see it. That this is not just an absolute God is not a genie in a bottle and He gives us everything we want. It's everything we need, not everything we want. And also it's not according to our lust or our greed or our our wishful thinking of what we think we're entitled to, it's according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that's what He's providing us with. That's what He's filling us with. We want to be clear on that as well. All right. The promise of God's faithful provision is connected to the Philippians' faithful provision. Okay? The promise of God's faithful provision is connected to the Philippians' faithful provision. They were faithful to support Paul. God is faithful to provide for them. Right? That's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. Now, um, can we then take this as a, as a specific issue and then broaden it to a more general application? That's, that's fair. I think we've got to be careful in doing that. And that's why we're going to have these other passages we're looking at also that show those links, that show those connections. Alright. Because the question would be asked then, well then you know, if what if I what if the Philippians had not provided faithfully for Paul? Would would they have been provided for? Is is verse eighteen or nineteen truly a consequence of what they did in verse eighteen? It seems to be linked here. Is this the only passage that links them that way, or are there other passages that link that make very similar linkages? Okay, and uh, that's what we're going to explore here tonight as we look at these references. I think um, we've already had a, a similar uh, application when we were looking at verse 6 and verse 7. We were looking at uh, people who want the peace of God to surpass all comprehension. They want that, but they don't have the prayer life that verse 6 calls for, where it says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And so really, if, if, if you know a believer or yourself or whoever, if you know somebody that is flagrantly defying verse 6, why should they expect verse 7 to be, to be realized? They're linked together in that way. Alright, and so we have a similar linkage here between verses 18 and 19. So let's look at a sample of passages, and I think this is very representative. Psalm 23.1, of course the Lord is my shepherd, and that's a good, great provision passage and shepherding passage. Psalm 37, Psalm 84, uh, three places in the Psalms where we're going to see God is faithful to provide. And we love that because He's our God and He provides and we call upon Him to provide. Uh, Likewise in Proverbs, the wisdom that He expects for us to live the Word of God. Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 11. Likewise Jesus who said all these things will be added unto you. But in order for all these things to be added unto you, what's the verse that comes right in front of that? 
says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So, you know, if you're, if you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, why do you think that all these things are going to be added unto you? See, and this is what it comes down to is with respect to, I think, sloppy believers that only read what they want to read and apply what they want to apply, which is not what's expected of them, but just what they think they can call upon God and hold it over His head like somehow He's obligated. All right. Likewise, Romans 8.32 uh, I think all these things uh, will will harmonize quite well. So we start then in Psalm 23. It's a great psalm to use if you're going to teach Hebrew poetry because you've got these elements right here and they're so, um, per, I mean, really easy to spot it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've got nine words in English, you've got four in Hebrew. And it is just such an economy of usage. It's just such a, the, the brevity of the, of the poetry is beautiful. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that is to be in need, to be in lack, to, to, when it says to be in want or not wanting. That uh, means I have no deficiencies with the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, if, uh, if, I, if there's something I think is a deficiency, it's not something I need or he would have given it to me. All right? It's where I need to learn contentment. I am not in want when the Lord is my shepherd. And uh, so as we look at this, let's just ask ourselves, is this unconditional? Is it absolute? Is it no matter what? Uh, you know, if, if I think that I shall not want clearly is connected to the Lord is my shepherd. So if you're not being shepherded, if you refuse to be shepherd, if you're not following your shepherd, if you're going to be the renegade sheep that ignores the shepherd... Uh, what claim do you think you have on the, the B part of verse 1? Okay, I think you're going to have a lot of want until you get back to where you should be with the Lord as your shepherd. See. And then he makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, I don't want to lie down in green pastures. I don't want to lie down. Why would I want to lie down? Well, he's making you lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. Well, I don't want to go there. So again, I think a lot of this has built into it the understanding that you and I are going to subject ourselves to the will of God, that in all our ways we're going to acknowledge Him. He will direct our steps. But that means we have to function as a sheep and follow our shepherd in this regard. And if we're going to get out of that in carnality and just do our own thing and blaze our own trail and whatever, well then, (laughs) He actually honors His design and allows us the exercise of our volition. But then we face the consequences. Then it's reaping and sowing, and we, we um, you know, we face the consequences of our decisions. So uh, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Mention that a lot in our opening prayers and aspects there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, well, I don't want to be there. <laughs> I mean, let's just avoid those kind of things. I mean, who wants that kind of tough... I mean, I, I'm a believer now. I should just have a, you know millennial Christianity and, and easy street. Everything should be great. No, not what He designed it for. All right, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And, and it should be a comfort when He corrects us, when He rebukes us, when He smacks us upside the head and wakes us up and says, hey, don't go there. That's a blessing you prepare a table before me. Well, that sounds fun. In the presence of my enemies. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> OK? 
Okay? I love how every verse here has built within it these ideas that, you know, we're just simple sheep and it's a good thing we've got a shepherd the way that we do. Because there's an awful lot going on that he has to deal with that we can just trust him to do these things. All right, and so in any event, we have faithful provision. I shall not want, but that's is it, that's in inseparable, inseparable. That's you can't separate that from the Lord is my shepherd, right? So if you stop being shepherded, in other words, if you don't submit to the headship of Jesus Christ, if you don't submit to His shepherding, then uh, start to anticipate quite a bit of want. Start to anticipate that when you're out there in permissive will, there's going to be some want with that. There's going to be some deprivations. There's going to be some consequences, divine judgment consequences for not walking with the Lord. Psalm 37. All right, so there's one example. I think it bears up to what we're talking about in Philippians 4. Let's look at another example. Psalm 37, verse 3 and verse 4. All right. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. They will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, when people read those two verses, what do you think they lock in on? They lock in on, he will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, They'll just zero in on, on 4B, right? Ooh, God's going to give me the desires of my heart, okay? He's not talking about your wicked, deceitful heart. You know, the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked, who can know it? That's not what he's talking about, okay? Because you're overlooking verse 3 and the first half of verse 4. Trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, you're walking by faith and you're bearing fruit in the, in the plan of God. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's the same delight, okay, when we were studying the idea of, of, a, of an acceptable sacrifice and well-pleasing to God. Delight yourself in the Lord. And so you're in the Word of God. It's transforming your thinking. He's shaping your attitudes to be pleasing in His sight. Those are the attitudes that He's then going to provide for he will give you the desires of your heart, your transformed heart, your heart that he's shaping through his word. So this too, I think, is a marvelous text that goes well with Philippians. It says we're not just going to name it and claim it and have all the prosperity we think we want that our carnal mind can, can dream about, right? So I'm not yet ready to, uh, you know, to, to claim my lottery ticket and the, the hundreds of millions of dollars I think I'm entitled to. All right. Psalm 84. So far we've seen two examples and they both agree with the understanding that this promise is not an absolute promise, uh, that it is very much compatible with our faithfulness in the plan of God to submit ourselves to His will. Psalm 84 and verse 11. This, uh, oh there's so much in this one too. Um, Let's just pick it up here in verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
So again, I've got to ask you this. Um, we, could fo- we could focus on no good thing does he withhold and say, there it is, name and claim it, I get whatever I want. But it says, from those who walk uprightly. Are you walking in the will of God? Are you humble before Him? Are you pleasing to Him? Are you living in the Word of God, abiding in Christ so as to bear much fruit? Um, in that circumstance, that's what He's providing for. You know, and all of these get abused if, if you just want to say, oh well, you know, I can live however I want to live, not in the Word of God, not in the will of God, a flagrant life of carnality and sin, and, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold God to some kind of obligation I think He owes me or He has to provide for me because He made promises. Wait a minute, I, you're misreading His promises. That's what you're doing. He made other promises too that says as a loving Father He's going to discipline you. How about that? Claim that as a promise. Because that's where you are right now in, in this carnal uh, aspect. So looking at Psalm 84.11, now I think this is now our third example. Psalm 23, Psalm 37, Psalm 84. That in all of these examples we have here, yes, God has promised to provide. But in His promise to provide is the understanding and the recognition that this is what He's designed for the Christian way of life, for our, our walk in the Word of God. And that if you want to venture off the path, instead of running with endurance the race that's set before you, if you want to kind of invent your own race and just go off and whatever, um, well... There's other promises. God will still provide, but what He's going to provide is His corrective hand of discipline. (laughs) He's going to provide His uh, overruling will. He's going to provide His love to get you back on the path where you never should have left in the first place. And once you're there, then the other provision will start coming as well. Okay. The idea that you can be off the path, way out here in the Thule's, and have all the blessings that are on that path, that's insane. Get back on the path. That's where the blessings are. Get back in the will of God. Because these are the promises for provision. Proverbs chapter 3. So my thesis holds up at least through the Psalms. Let's see if it holds up in the Proverbs. All right. Proverbs 3. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So these are principles of of giving that parents are instilling upon their children. And again, you don't want to read verse 10 in isolation and just claim it as an absolute without recognizing its connection to verse 9. The recognition, you want barns to be filled with plenty, you want vats to overflow with new wine. There's consequences, that is consequences of what is your attitude. Honor the Lord from your wealth. That is, you should be gracious in your own priesthood, in your own uh, perspective of grace. The idea that, as it says, from the first fruits of all your produce. You can be like that widow woman with her child and you got enough oil for one last cake and the prophet said, well make me the first one and you can have the one after that. And you realize we're starving to death here. But the prophet of God said, make me the first cake. Okay? And she did and the miracle was done and she had oil for not only just that day, she couldn't just make a second cake and a third cake. She was provided for for the entirety of that, of that drought, that, uh, that famine. All right. 
So honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce means be grace-oriented with the will of God for grace-giving. Then you need to be properly oriented to finances, to Christian wealth, to all the principles that God has designed. And if you function on that basis, well then, sure, the sky's the limit. God rewards that, God honors that, God uses that. God finds, hey, here's a believer, especially in the church age, here's a believer that can really be powerful in the local church for his good pleasure. See? But the idea of of defying verse 9, let's say you're not gracious, let's say you're not honoring him, let's say you're, uh, you're not biblical in your use of finances. Why in the world would God then throw more at you when you can't handle the little bit? You've already demonstrated that you're you're a poor steward in what you've already been, uh, been, been showing. Why would he then honor that or bless that? Makes no sense. So I think here in Proverbs 3 we've got another good example where yes there's a promise of provision but that promise is linked to a previous demonstration of faithfulness. Remember when you're faithful with little things God entrusts you with bigger things. you find that again and again and again. How about Proverbs 11? Verses 24 and 25. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. You know, we've got other passages too that warn you, you better pay your workmen. Don't let the sun go down. Don't, don't withhold their wages to the, you know, pay them that day. He's finished a day's work, give him his day's pay. And uh, don't be stingy. And so the one who scatters, he's very gracious, he's very generous. It's like in Second Corinthians, he's uh, sowing bountifully, he's going to reap bountifully. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. And if you withhold what is justly due, um, there's recompense there. It results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. That's how it works. When you're transformed by the Word of God and you're generous with God's grace, you know you've freely received it, you know you've freely given it, and and God's glorified coming and going. It's a win-win. It's a beautiful thing when you're functioning biblically. So here too, we've got Proverbs 3, we've got Proverbs 11. I've yet to find an example where there's just this prosperity message preached, no matter how we live, no matter what we do, in spite of our own carnality, it's just not there. So if I try to take my God will supply all your needs and then pervert it and abuse it and, and turn it into this magic you know, genie bottle thing to rub it and no. What an abuse of the Scriptures. That's not consistent with the passage itself, let alone Psalms and Proverbs and all these other passages that we're looking at. Okay? Matthew 6.33 So it's not just the Old Testament. Matthew 6.33, this is Jesus, and I said it a minute ago. The idea of seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, what comes first and what comes second? Does your spiritual life suffer for the advancement of your career? Well, then it's backwards. Or does your career, quote-unquote, suffer? It doesn't really. But does your career suffer for the sake of obeying the Lord in the Christian walk? Okay. which when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved. Okay. You've got to have it in the, right, in the right order. And so in Matthew 6, 
you know, don't worry about these things. In verse 25, do not worry about your life. And really, this, is the, this whole story is the illustration of no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Mammon. Okay? And this is the, the story then, the, the teaching that illustrates that. So for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life or your livelihood as to what you will eat or what you will drink or your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? If we have food and clothing with these we shall be content. But life is more than that. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ. We're here to advance. We're here to bear fruit. We're here to achieve the will of God for our generation. When that's finished then we'll go, uh, we'll, we'll finish our course and, and go to glory. And then in the meantime of course we're going to eat and drink and wear clothes and work and raise families and all that earthly stuff we do, but that's beside the point. So look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And it's it's undeniable. And uh, who of you by being worried can add a single cubit, a single hour to his life? And you, uh, why are you uh, worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. So here's the principle. Seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness. Now seek first. Not seek only. Seek first. If your spiritual life's on track, if you're leading your family in the Word of God, if, if you're where you're supposed to be and pursuing your gifts, your ministries and effects, if all that's on target, there is nothing whatsoever wrong with seeking second your career, your occupation, the, the earthly provision and all those things. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, you're, you're a fool if you don't, you know, related to uh, just the common sense of daily life. So seek ye first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there you have it. How can you claim the added part without the first part? To seek ye first. Provision comes for those brothers and sisters that are walking in His will according to His design. It says, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps. It comes right down to that. How about Romans 8.32? course, uh, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, just like every other verse we've been looking at tonight, there's a very um, you know tunnel vision view whereby carnal believers just seem to zero in on certain words and ignore other words. In this case, yeah, freely give us all things. Woohoo! Wait, it says, with him, freely give us all things. Are you walking with the Lord? It says, with him. So he who did not spare his own son, understand that. He's already paid such a price. He paid an infinite price, an unthinkable price. While we were enemies, he paid the most painful thing he would ever pay. And so having accomplished that, now that we're His sons, now that we're redeemed, you know, 
having already paid the unthinkable, how will he not now just pour out riches again and again and again and again? Because he loves his son. He's giving you what he's giving you, not for your sake, it's for his son's sake. And so, yeah, just go ahead and underline those words, with him. How will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? So this great pile of plunder you were thought you were getting with this magic verse that says uh, God's got to give you anything you want, it doesn't say that. He will freely give us with Him. Remember, Jesus is the heir of all things, and any blessings we have is by virtue of our union with Christ, our position in Christ. Well, I've yet to see it. I've yet to see um, any verse that supports the carnal view of Philippians 4. I think every verse is supporting this view that for my God to supply your need, it comes in, con- in connection with the Philippians supplying Paul. The Philippians had supplied Paul, God will supply them. Our last chance now for uh, this uh, get-rich-quick scheme is Second uh, Corinthians 9. And we're going to fail miserably here too. <laughs> All right. Second Corinthians 9. Verses 8 through 11. Obviously, if I just want to be uh, tunnel vision and uh, twisting a text, well, then I'm just going to lock in on verse 11. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. All right, great, make me rich. But it doesn't sit by itself, okay? And um, really, uh, I know the screen says 8 through 11, but if you back up to verse 6, you get everything that's here. I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I mean, it just makes sense. And uh, it comes down to the idea of generosity, of liberality, if you will. comes down to uh, the idea that uh, that you're only planting one field and then you get mad when you don't have three fields to harvest. You know, well, you know, well, why would you have three fields to harvest? You only planted in one. But if you planted in all three... If you sowed in all three, well then yeah, it shouldn't be a great shock that you're going to have three fields then reaping the, reaping the harvest. And so the more stingy you are, the less you're going to reap. The more gracious you are, the, the more you're going to reap. Each must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love the fact that we're not under Old Testament. We're not under Mosaic law. We don't have the tithe of the have-to of the, of the, the 10%. We've got a, a wide open door. What do you want to give? There's no have to. It's all what do you want to. It's all the freedom that we have in Christ. And so God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now He's able. You cannot give the Lord. You cannot give God. And so as gracious as you want to be, as cheerful as you want to be, I think we can all we could all get more cheerful, we could all get more hilarious in our giving. And we're not going to outgive God. Our our cheerfulness and our graciousness and our abundance will never outgive the Lord. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, and we've got a psalm quote here. Now look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. You notice that? 
God in His provision isn't just handing you loaves of bread. He's actually giving you seed in His grace. And then you're going to, what are you going to do with that seed? You're going to plant it, you're going to water it, and you're going to harvest it. And there's work that goes into this. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the more you put into it, the more you plant, the more you give of yourself for your fellow brothers and sisters in the church age, that's what He rewards. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So he responds to faithfulness. When you're faithful with little things, he gives you more things. And and not just handing it to you, but handing you more seed so that you can sow more, so that you can harvest more. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. How much more do you want to plant? Three fields? Five fields? Ten fields? He'll just keep giving. All the seed you want to, all the seed you want to sow. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, I love verse 12, not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that's almost a side effect. That's almost beside the point. Oh yeah, yeah, you sent some funds to Jerusalem and yeah, that's going to bless them and their famine. Um, But more than that, it's overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So now there's a priestly chorus giving the amen and a priestly chorus offering the thanksgiving and praise. All right. So I think every passage we've examined has sustained the thesis from Philippians 4, 18 and 19 that my God shall supply all your need cannot be separated from you have filled me, you have supplied my need. That they had, they had play ra'od Paul, God is not going to play ra'od them. He's going to play ra'od their needs. It's not separable. Also, the criteria for God's provision is not our selfish desires or material wealth, but God the Father's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The criteria for God's provision is not our selfish desires or material wealth. When he said, I will supply your need, he didn't say it was going to be with money. Money's beside the point. They gave money to Paul, yes, but it was a sweet-smelling savor before the Father's throne of grace. What's he going to give them? You know, it might be money, but it might not be money. That's the point. It might be something else. It's according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All right. God, not our selfish desires, not material wealth, but God the Father's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, fundamentally, we are a heavenly people and a heavenly citizenship. And without land grants and without earthly wealth and no promises of earthly wealth, the New Testament is quite a bit different from the Old Testament related to those things. All right? Our blessings are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And when He gives, it's according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So I think we have the promise here, and, and we can connect this real well with Romans eleven thirty three. I wonder how fast we can get through this. I just realized I won't be here on Sunday and I won't be here a week from tonight. So that's wherever we drop it tonight, we're not going to pick it up again until March 17th. All right. So let's look at these. Romans 11.33 What are His riches and glory in Christ Jesus? 
What is that treasury like? You know? When Geraldo opened up Al Capone's vault, remember that? And oh, the big, I mean, this was hilarious because, I mean, they built it up, they built it up for weeks. They finally, on live television, they open it up. What a disappointment. All right. Well, imagine opening up the vault of God the Father's riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And it's not what a lot of folks think it is. Okay? Because that's carnality thinking, that's human viewpoint thinking, that's worldly thinking. All right. Oh, the depth of the riches, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So here's some riches called the wisdom and knowledge of God. If my God will supply your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, what were you thinking that was going to be? You think it's U.S., uh, you know, United States Treasury, legal tender? You think uh, it says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of his wisdom, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. To me, this is one of the greatest blessings in the world is that we fathom the unfathomable. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So part of the riches and glory, when he says, my God will supply all your need, that includes his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Those riches are his wisdom and his knowledge. And you can have all those riches in the world and, and be you know, poor as a church mouse in human terms. Colossians 1. Verse 12 and verse 27. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Woohoo, I want to share in that inheritance. I, I want to sit there and I'm sharing that. And that sounds like a lot of money. What am I going to get? Because your rich uncle just died and they're reading the will and you're sitting there rubbing your hands thinking, all right, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? He left everything to the dog. All right. Uh, well, what is this inheritance? Notice, to share in the inheritance of the saints. You ever want to study objective genitives or subjective genitives or what kind of of is this of? The saints. Think about it. The bride of Christ is His gift to His Son. We are the inheritance in, in one way of thinking about it. One another, the brothers, the saints. Alright, how about verse uh, 27? To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you counting that as riches? You should. It's mentioned here as riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. There's some riches right here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Man, put a price tag on that. I dare you. Ephesians 1.18 He is the heir of all things and of course we are in Christ. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance? Notice, in the saints. In the saints. When you're properly oriented to God's provision for you and you realize that God's provision for you is all of us. This body of believers, this, 
this refuge of, of saints that love you and pray for you and serve you. And, and, and this is, we're the wealthiest people in the world. Right here at Austin Bible Church. The riches, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who walk by faith. Okay? But you've got to have your eyes open. And if you don't, you're just like Gehazi, Elisha's servant. You think that you're surrounded by the enemy. And you don't realize that, no, Elisha opened his eyes and, no, we got them surrounded. Okay? There's angels uh, and, and fiery uh, chariots and we're not the ones surrounded here in this. We're the ones protected here in this. The riches of His glory and inheritance of the saints. Chapter 2 and verse 7. In the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's more riches. Kindness in Christ Jesus. 3.8 To me the very least of all saints that grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. More riches according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Finally, can I get some riches now? (laughs) To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again and again and again. These are the riches that we have. We're the richest saints that have ever walked this earth. The bride of Christ. There's been no, there's been no richer saints than us. And this is what He provides. My God will supply all your need, singular, through His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All right. This is where we'll pick up on Sunday the 17th. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Open our eyes to see the true riches, the true wealth, that we might not be distracted by earthly wealth. And Father, we might be humble before you in all that we say and all that we do. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.